I just finished teaching a class here at the church where we discussed the rise of social media and the challenges and opportunities the rise of social media, of technology, presents for individuals of faith, for families of faith, and even for congregations like our own. Not surprisingly, it was a fascinating and at times a little bit challenging conversation as we grappled, as disciples of different ages grappled with the implications of innovations like Periscope and Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and text messaging and online learning, just to name a few. In this congregation alone, we have five generations. Five generations of people who love this place and who seek to live out their faith, to grow in faith inside these walls. There's the silent generation, half of whom were born before the first television broadcast in 1936. The silent generation is a generation who can actually remember life before screens. Then there are the baby boomers, that big bubble of you folks moving through our society who grew up during a time when television became a new and powerful tool for social change, shaping culture, religion, and even politics. Then there's Generation X, those of us who are straddling two worlds, those of us who have childhood memories of a party line in the kitchen and cell phones as big as your head and life before cell phones and even email. We have those memories, but we also have grown up right alongside the new technologies that we've had to learn to use or be sorely left behind. And then there are the millennials who are here with us this morning who can hardly imagine a world without cell phones, texts, and email. And then there's Generation Z, those born after 1996, who have never known a world without a phone in everyone's pocket or purse. Silent generation, a world with no screens, all the way to Generation Z, a a group that can't imagine a world without screens. As a pastor who seeks to serve and empower and educate five generations with unique relationships with and feelings about technology, I, along with the staff of this and every church, I am acutely aware, we are acutely aware of the challenges of ministry in the 21st century. Earthquake after earthquake after earthquake has reduced to rubble the world we used to know, creating a new one, that while unfamiliar to many of us, is the world that we are called to love and to serve. After a violent earthquake opened the doors to their prison cell and unfashioned the chains that were tied to their feet, Paul and Silas make the strangest choice. They were placed behind those bars and in those chains because they performed a miracle which means that if they had come to town, 
to show people, to reveal to people the power of their God, they had achieved their purpose with that miracle. People knew they could do deeds of power in Christ's name. And then the ground shook. And whether or not God was the one doing the shaking, the timing of the earthquake surely convinced any remaining doubters that these men, Paul and Silas and their followers, they had real power on their side. If showing people they were on the side of a powerful God was their purpose, when the earthquake came and unfastened their chains, Paul and Silas would have run for their freedom. They would have over, perhaps overwhelmed their captors or judged those who had unjustly judged them. But they didn't do any of those things. After the earthquake, they stayed. They stayed right where they were. In January, Leanne Walters, while standing in a laboratory on Virginia Tech's campus, picked up two bottles of filthy yellow water and turned to her twins, Gavin and Garrett. Do you guys remember this? Do you remember what this is? She asked them. That's the yucky water, Gavin replied. The boys understood what that was, and the mother, their mother understood all too well. In late 2014, at her home in Flint, Michigan, Leanne Walters was at a breaking point. The tap water was giving her twins rashes all over their body. Her eyelashes were falling out, and her daughter's hair was falling out, and her older son constantly complained of abdominal pain. City testing found high levels of lead in her home's water, but she couldn't get further help from the city or state officials. An EPA official referred Walters to a scientist whose reputation for protecting the public preceded him. His name was Mark Edwards, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia. Now, before Leanne and Mark connected, before they talked, Leanne was fast becoming a citizen scientist on the ground in Flint, an advocate, a vocal advocate for the Flint residents. But after she talked to Mark, Leanne learned how to collect water samples from her tap and from the taps of others. And it was from the results of these samples that Mark and his team determined that Flint faced widespread elevated levels of lead, which united a coalition of Flint residents and others, helping to expose a health crisis, a health crisis whose shock waves we are still feeling today, not only in Flint, in our city, but around our nation and our world. Now, in late January, Walters and her family traveled to Blacksburg, Virginia, where she received a heroism award during a presentation there by the university's Flint water study team. More than 500 people filled the small auditorium and two overflow rooms, and over 2,000 people live-streamed the event online. Now, while many there applauded the hard work of the student researchers who spent many hours poring over the data and the results, Mark Edwards turned the credit back He turned the credit back to the Flint residents, specifically people like Leanne Walters. This is what he said. I tell my students if they learn one thing from their class, it's that the most powerful force in the universe is a mother worried about the health of her child. If you threaten that, mama will come and mess you up. (laughs) Even if, even if you are a powerful government agency. Lee Ann Walters stayed. 
even as the infrastructures of her community began to fall down around her, she stayed. She could have left town, taken her kids somewhere else, and let others tackle what seemed like an insurmountable, unsolvable problem, but she didn't. She stuck around. And she stayed because she was motivated by the same thing that motivated Silas and Paul to stay after the earthquake, to stay in that cell. She stayed because she loved her kids, but she also stayed because she loved the other countless men and women and children who were being poisoned by their water. She stayed because Leanne put their needs and their safety and their struggles ahead of her own. The more I studied today's passage and reflected on its meaning, I became more aware of our instinct to run for cover when the ground beneath us shifts. And when that happens, we run for cover, I fear we miss the real miracle, the true miracle of today's story. The miracle is not the fact that a young girl got freed from an evil spirit. That's a good thing, but that's not the miracle. And the miracle is not God causing the earthquake. We don't know whether God did or not. No, the miracle in today's story is that Paul and Silas stayed when they had every reason to leave. When your session adopted five core values two years ago, they chose values they believed were essential for us to hold on to if we wanted to be a church in the 21st century. The values they chose were authentic, generous, inclusive, innovative, and relevant. And it's those last two values, innovative and relevant, that are the hardest for us to embrace, both as a congregation but also as individuals in our own lives. Because when the ground beneath us shifts and shakes, we want to run. We want to run to judgment, to what we know, or to our own safety. When the ground shakes, we want to run. And yet the true test of one's commitment to a set of values, to a set of principles, is what you do when those values and principles are tested by a life-altering earthquake or storm. One of the terms used by social scientists to describe both millennials and Generation Z is the term digital natives. They refer to our two youngest generations as digital natives because they are the first generations in our world's history who are trying to faithfully navigate a world where these This is my phone and my wallet. I lose my wallet and my phone, so I've combined them together, so I will lose them together. (laughs) My point is, they, they are trying to navigate a world with these. And these things are ubiquitous, and they're absolutely necessary. And they are navigating this world, this new terrain, this new landscape, without a map and without the wisdom of their elders to show them the way. And as they navigate a landscape that none of us have ever seen, they need us to stay with them. Not to judge them or educate them or get them to conform to the world we know. What they need is for us to stay with them and love them right where they are. So they can see and experience the love of God who is with them and us and the world in all things.
Paul and Silas stayed in their cell for one reason, I believe. They were more concerned about the jailer and his family than they were about themselves. They were not trying to impress people or overwhelm people or ensure their own safety once their work there was done. They were there to tell the story of God's life-changing love, a love they themselves had experienced. And they were eager to share it with those they believed needed to hear that good news the most. And sometimes, all the time, actions speak louder than words. This past week, I toured one of the breakthrough schools here in Cleveland. It was a boost to my spirits to learn more about all the really good work Breakthrough is doing for the 3,000 Cleveland school children they serve at their 10 charter school campuses here in town. During a question and answer session following a brief tour, someone asked John Zitzner, a Fairmount member and a co-founder of Breakthrough, they asked him how, why, these schools were able to bring kids up to grade level despite all the real challenges they faced at home and in their communities and on the streets. And John's answer got me thinking about today's passage. What makes it work, he said, is that everyone in our schools, every maintenance worker, every teacher, every cook, every cleaner, every administrator, believes that any kid who walks through our doors can be taught. The miracle of breakthrough, the secret to its success, isn't its educational plan or its funding strategy. The miracle of breakthrough is that the staff is committed to stay with those kids when so many have left them behind. I don't believe God causes earthquakes. I don't think God designed the iPhone or had anything to do with email. And if God did have something to do with email, we'd have a conversation. I don't think God developed the steam engine. I hear that was a big deal back in the day. Or the World Wide Web. That was Al Gore. (laughs) I don't think, I don't think God causes tidal waves or tsunamis. I don't believe God causes earthquakes. But I do believe that God uses all the earthquakes that alter the landscape of our lives to give us, the children of God, Christ's disciples, to give us the opportunity to stay and show people what the love of God looks like. And what it looks like is people who stay. When the earth shakes and the world we know is replaced by one we don't, which happens to everybody at some point or another, May we, like Paul and Silas, may we have the courage to stay with those most affected by the seismic shift. When our chains are unfastened and we are free to run from the uncertainty of the present moment into the safety and security of the past, may we stay and tell the story of God's love with more than just our words. May we stay and tell the story of God's love with actions that speak to our commitment to those people, to one another. May we stay and speak to the love that is with us and for us in all things, especially in those times when the ground beneath our feet shakes. 